You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Tensions continue to rise between Russia and other mostly Western countries as the number of nations taking diplomatic measures to protest the Salisbury attack exceeds 25. Western governments are on alert for Russian cyber operations as well as diplomatic reprisals. A new bug called Branch Scope is found affecting Intel processors. The Facebook data scandal continues. Atlanta and Baltimore recover from hacks of municipal systems. And don't be fooled by bogus job offers. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, March 28, 2018. The tally of countries taking diplomatic action against Russia for what U.S. Defense Secretary Mattis aptly called attempted murder in Salisbury has now risen above 25. The U.S. expulsion of 60 diplomats accredited to Russia's Washington Embassy and United Nations delegation is the largest ever such expulsion ordered by an American administration. Nothing in the Cold War, for example, came close. A number of observers have poo-pooed, showing diplomats the door as an ineffectual response that doesn't really hit President Putin and his regime where it hurts. They recommend harder financial sanctions, for example, like suspending Russian banks' access to the SWIFT international funds transfer system. While it's doubtless true that oligarchs care a lot about their net worth and its liquidity, the degree of odium and isolation Russia is experiencing can't be comfortable, especially during a time when domestic outrage is rising over Sunday's disastrous fire that destroyed a shopping mall in the Siberian city of Kemerova, killing at least 64 people, 41 of them children. The high death toll is attributed to official negligence and corruption, disabled alarms, locked exits, and so forth and there have been protests in Russia. Another downside is the striking degree of intelligence sharing that's taken place in the West over the Salisbury attack. The Times of Israel is particularly struck by what it calls an unprecedented degree of openness on the part of British intelligence. Such collaboration isn't good news for Russia. For its part, Russia's foreign ministry has denounced the diplomatic reprisals as senseless and boorish, and promise that Russia will itself take some action in response. What that action will be is expected to include, as a minimum, Russia's own declaration of foreign diplomatic personnel persona non grata. More worrisome is the prospect of offensive Russian cyber operations. For weeks, officials and security experts in a number of countries, but notably in the UK and the US, 
have warned the vulnerability of electrical power grids to cyber attack and of Russian preparations to conduct such an attack. When such exchanges in cyberspace might become an act of war remains unclear, but it's unsettling to say the least that this question is now being widely asked. There are all sorts of illicit products and services for sale on the deep and dark web. Liv Rowley is an intelligence analyst at Flashpoint, and she recently authored a research report titled Refund Fraud and Fake Receipts Proliferate on the Deep and Dark Web. She joins us to share her findings. Probably about a year ago, we started hearing from some industry partners that they were really being impacted by refund fraud, which is just uh, when somebody orders something online typically, and then they pretend that there was an issue with the shipment of the product in order to get a refund of the product. So they get the actual product in the mail, and then they get that refund as well. Uh, so we started looking into it, and we were seeing it all over, you know, a handful of communities in the deep and dark web where people were actually selling their ability to con customer service uh, representatives in order to get these refunds. I see. So walk us through here. What, what exactly did you discover? How does this work? Uh, so what we discovered is, well, there are definitely people doing this on their own just to defraud companies and get their own pair of sneakers. We found that there's a handful of we're calling them refund fraud vendors. They actually offer their abilities to secure these fraudulent refunds for their clients. So uh, if you would be interested in using one of these refund fraud vendors, you might buy, uh, say, a laptop online. And then after you get the delivery of the laptop, you'll go to one of these vendors and say, hey, I, I got this laptop, but I don't want to pay for it. I want a refund. And you pretty much hand over all the details of that shipment when you bought it, what the name on the account is, all that, to this vendor. And then the vendor calls up their customer service, makes up whatever excuse you know, they're, they feel will get the job done. And then the client of that you know, illicit vendor gets a refund, uh, a full refund, and they pay a small percentage, normally about 10%, to the person who helped them get that refund. Uh, so it's a, it's a super interesting scam because people are essentially contracting out uh, social engineering. And so on, on the retailer side, are, are people just taking advantage of uh, retailers wanting to provide good customer service? That's what a lot of it is, absolutely. A lot of times uh, these retailers will even push back. Uh, cyber criminals will talk about how, you know, the retailer will say, well, that's, you know, not our problem. That might be a problem with the shipping company. Uh, and they will keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing until they do eventually get these refunds. Interesting. It strikes me, too, that, you know, in an age of, uh, you know, where I get a text message when, uh, you know, UPS delivers something from Amazon, uh, there's a paper trail on these things. And like I said, well, electronic paper trail. Uh, and it would strike me that that would make this sort of thing more difficult. But uh, your research seems to show that they can still do it. Yeah, it really just comes down to, I mean, there are a variety of dis excuses that these uh, these fraudsters are employing when, when talking to customer service representatives, but a lot of it is just them very convincingly lying to these people who are giving them refunds. Uh, we'll even see, some of them will say, hey, even if you signed for the package, I can get you a refund, uh, which to me is absolutely remarkable. And is there any sign that the retailers are, are getting wise to this and, and uh, pushing back? They're definitely aware of it, and uh, different retailers have been employing different countermeasures. Uh, signing is a big one. A lot of people won't be uh, so bold as to ask for a refund even when they've signed for it. But also, we've seen some retailers have rolled out uh, weighing packages throughout transit, 
uh, sometimes what these fraudsters will say is that they got their package, but there was just nothing in it. Or maybe they got two of the four items that they ordered. And that's the excuse that they'll use to get a refund. So when you are weighing this package uh, at each step, you can say, well, there's no way that that box was empty because because we, we weighed it and there was a weight to it and it aligns with the product. Um, so there are different things that are being done to try to combat this type of fraud. The last interesting thing that I would have to say about this is the fact that you also have people sharing uh, evidence of either the products that they were able to acquire or you know an email stating that they did get a refund and they're sharing this information openly. So that's one of the reasons that we can be pretty sure that this fraud is indeed happening and that these vendors of these fraudulent refund services are actually doing what they say they're doing uh, because people take a screenshot of an email that they got uh, saying, okay, hey, you know, we're sorry about your package. Here's an $800 refund. And they'll post that on you know, these deep and dark web forums to help boost the credibility of the vendor. Uh, so that's very interesting to actually see that evidence that this is happening. That's Liv Rowley from Flashpoint. You can read the complete report. Refund fraud and fake receipts proliferate on the deep and dark web. On the Flashpoint website, it's in the blog section. University researchers have found a new vulnerability affecting Intel chips. This one called Branch Scope involves a susceptibility to side channel attacks. Intel has been working on the issue and thinks the bug probably amounts to no big deal. In industry news, Talis continues to move forward with its plan to acquire all of Jamalto's stock, and Jamalto's board is commending the deal to shareholders. The period during which Jamalto shareholders can take Talis up on its offer run from today through June 6th. Canadian advertising and software development firm Aggregate IQ has denied connections with Cambridge Analytica, as well as involvement in the ongoing data scandal. But code found by UpGuard in an exposed Aggregate IQ database suggests there may be some connection. In the code was a string ripon, which is the name of a Cambridge Analytical platform, and also the username SCL, the name of Cambridge Analytica's corporate parent. The findings are small and circumstantial, but also interesting in the light of Cambridge Analytica whistleblower Christopher Wiley's testimony in the UK that Aggregate IQ was involved in U.S. campaign operations. For its part, Facebook is putting its money where its mouth is with respect to its take that the data scandal is essentially an app scandal, and a third-party app scandal at that. It's offering researchers bug bounties for finding and reporting apps that collect and misuse data. Details on the bounty program will be made available as Facebook firms them up over the coming weeks. The expanded bug bounty is only one element of the company's damage control. To review, Facebook initially responded by pausing all third-party application reviews on its platform until it could apply changes to app permissions that would impede future episodes of data misuse. The company also said that it would have its engineers manually review any app that requested access to a user's friends list. As a minimum, that review would determine whether the app was actually using the data within itself as opposed to just scraping it up for other purposes. The company also intends to look into apps that could access data before Facebook's 2014 changes to the platform that were intended to reduce such access. Facebook also intends to sunset apps. If you've installed an app and haven't used it for three months, Facebook will turn off that app's access to data. Any app developers found to abuse data will no longer be welcomed by Facebook, 
and of course the company says it intends to notify users affected by data abuse. Such moves of reform and repentance have their limits, however. CEO Mark Zuckerberg has declined Westminster's request that he come to London and testify before a parliamentary inquiry into fake news. Members of Parliament affect shock at his demurral. Two large U.S. cities have been affected by hackers over the past two weeks. Atlanta is just now beginning to recover from the SamSam ransomware infestation that induced the city to take many of its employees and services offline last week. Advice against paying ransom still holds, but Atlanta's experience shows that recovery can be far from painless. Atlanta's brought in a lot of help. A partial list includes SecureWorks, the FBI, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, including the Secret Service, and response teams from Microsoft and Cisco. The other city is Baltimore, whose 911 dispatch system was hacked Sunday morning. The city's emergency responders switched to manual operation until the computers were brought back online by 2 o'clock Monday morning. The mayor says it's back to normal now. Finally, an interesting scam has been reported in which criminals have impersonated executives and even board members from the large U.S. federal contractor CSRA to hoodwink applicants for jobs into handing over information better kept to themselves, like credentials and other personal data. The approach starts with an email from a Gmail account and then an interview in which the scammer uses the name of a real executive. They often follow up by sending the victim what looks like a check, the better to harvest financial information. CSRA isn't the only company whose good name is being abused, and we note that this involves no compromise on CSRA's part. The company and most of its peers post how we hire notes on its corporate website. Do consult them before you respond to a Gmail contact from anyone claiming to be a hiring manager. Sure, you want the job, but slow it down and be safe. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Dr. Charles Clancy. He's the director of the Hume Center for National Security and Technology at Virginia Tech. Dr. Clancy, welcome back. Great to be here. So an interesting topic you wanted to discuss today, uh, some analog security of of, uh, cyber-physical systems. What do we need to know about this? So a cyber-physical system is uh, any uh, sort of system that involves both a cyber component and a physical component, as the name might imply. Um, So you could think of a home automation system or uh, a connected vehicle, for example, as an example of a cyber-physical system. Um, and one of the interesting properties of a cyber-physical system is uh, that they have sensors that measure the environment around them. Uh, the readings from that sensor goes to some sort of control logic uh, that then makes decisions uh, and uh, from there takes action. So you can think of a self-driving car, for example. It has cameras and radars and other sensors that it uses to uh, then make decisions. Uh, those decisions then impact things like steering and acceleration. Um, so it's this interesting convergence of uh, the cyber world and the physical world and and has a unique set of cybersecurity challenges. And so take us through, what are some of those challenges? Um, Well, first is that um, oftentimes these sensors can be spoofed. Hmm. Uh, There's been some interesting research coming out of uh, the University of Michigan for the last few years uh, showing that uh, attackers can... Uh, for example, send acoustic waves or high-energy RF signals that will inductively couple into some of these circuits and cause false readings. Uh, And if false measurement data gets uh, processed by these control algorithms, wrong decisions get made, and that can potentially be a a major safety problem. Hmm. Another example of of some interesting research that's going on here at Virginia Tech by one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Ryan Gerdes, is actually looking at the actuators, so the things that that change, uh, motors and servos, things of that nature. Um, so he has a paper coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks at a, a major security conference that shows that uh, you can use a magnetic wave uh, to cause a motor to turn uh, in, a, in a controllable way. Hmm. So, for example, he can uh, actually take control of a UAV uh, by using these magnetic waves to directly control the motors. Uh, which is really interesting because it, there's really no cyber defense against that uh, it, because it's it's not anything that affects any of the digital control logic in the system. Yeah, so is this a matter of um, having systems in place to recognize these anomalies when they happen? Uh, definitely. So that's one of the key countermeasures. Um, most of these systems are designed to be uh, resilient in the face of uh, some sort of failure or, or fault or noise, uh, but none of them anticipate that there is a, a malicious element that's causing these particular failure modes. Uh, so, so the research agenda that we have at Virginia Tech is looking at how uh, you can begin to build these cyber-physical control systems and uh, have them uh, presume the, the presence of a malicious actor uh, as part of the uh, decision-making and logic. Interesting work. Dr. Charles Clancy, welcome back, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. 
Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.